working through this series of talking about temptation, about triumphing or being triumphant even when we're tested. And two weeks ago, we talked about that, that temptation not to follow God, especially when it looks like it's going to get hard. That temptation to take the easy way out. Because Jesus, the, the Holy Spirit, called him into the desert. And Jesus could have said, nah, I don't want to do that. I would rather stay here where it's comfortable. But yet, he was faithful, and he followed God. And then last week, we talked about that temptation when we are tempted to take control of things. When life is difficult or hard or we're afraid and we're tempted to, to take control, to try and make it work our way. And I do this thing each week, you know, it's been helpful. Some of you have been saying it's been helpful is, you know, do one thing this week. And last week, I said, do one thing. Ask God to show you where you're taking control. I don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> that was a bad idea because God has been at work in me this last week. I, Sunday, when, we were, when I was preaching, you know, and then after praying, you know, God, show me where I try to take control too much. And it's like God said, I thought you were never going to ask. <laughs> And it was by Tuesday. I'm not joking. It was Tuesday. And I was thinking, okay, God, I get it. I get it. So many times, God, people talking with me or about their own situation, just realizing how many times I try to take control of things. And so God has been at work in me. And, but it's been good, too, because I mean, I'm joking how it's difficult and challenging, but also it's been good. And some times of repentance, God, please forgive me, but also times of asking God for help. Lord, help me not to rely so much on myself or not to try and just control it when I'm afraid of how it might go. And God has been at work, and it's been good. I don't know, has anybody, have you guys been working with this too about trying not to be so controlling? Something that's been good for you? Well, this week I've been studying the next part of this, of this particular passage. When Jesus is tempted to put God to the test. And... That idea, like Tracy was talking about with the kids, of trying to test the limits of God's faithfulness, trying to test the boundaries of what God will do or how much he'll come through for us. And I have to admit, like, I am not tempted to climb to the highest part of our church and jump off. I'm not tempted that way. I'm not tempted to say, God, I'm going to jump, and if you don't save me, then I guess we'll kind of know where you stand. I'm not tempted to do that. But I am tempted to put God to the test in other ways in more subtle ways, but ways that are just as dangerous. It was actually a couple, a few weeks ago, uh, maybe a month ago, Tracy was um, talking with her little brother, and many of you know Eric, but he's in L.A. right now trying to get started as a photographer, and he was talking about how um, he bought all these tickets to follow this, he loves this one band, and he's been kind of following them around, and he bought tickets to their concerts like all over California. And she's talking with Tracy about some new clothes that he bought. And I remember saying, like, after we got done talking, I remember saying, God, that must be nice. It would be nice to have money to do that. And, and I was, you can hear my voice. It wasn't like, the, oh, that'd be nice. But it was that resentful, bitter, it'd be nice. And sort of saying, God, and I didn't actually talk, I didn't mean to say this to God, but it was sort of in the same way saying, God, why don't I have those sort of things? And and the amazing thing is, I said it with a straight face as I stood in our home. This amazing home that we have. This home that I'm so grateful for. That we, there's no way that we would have it if it wasn't for God's provision and for faithful friends who helped us with it. And I said it with a straight face in this home. And thankfully, God's Spirit quickly, within a few minutes, started helping me realize, you know, that's ridiculous. That's one of the most ridiculous things I could have ever said. Because God has been so faithful as I stand in this amazing home and next to my amazing wife 
And I have two little boys that it's scary how much I love them, and they're healthy and well. And I was still complaining, complaining about not having concert tickets. I wonder if maybe some of you have had like, experiences like this in your life. Those times when you begin to take God for granted or begin to take God's provision for granted. You know, and we start to overlook the fact that we have homes to live in. The fact, that, the fact that we don't have to walk, most of us, I think actually everybody here, has a car to drive. That none of us worry about really where our next meal is coming from. We have a pantry filled with groceries or a refrigerator that actually have a refrigerator. <laughs> and so we have these amazing things and yet we're still tempted to take them for granted. We're still tempted to forget about the stuff that we have, the ways that God has provided, and start to complain. And sometimes we even feel justified in the complaining, which is really dangerous. We can hear ourselves thinking, maybe we don't say it out loud, but we can start sort of thinking to ourselves, God, why are you not coming through for me here? God, why are you not fixing this for me? And we're tempted to put God to the test, to test the limits of God's faithfulness. And so maybe we're starting, some of you are starting to question, okay, yeah, I see how I do this, but how do we not do this? How do we not put God to the test? How do we trust God more faithfully? That's why I love the Word of God. And as watching Jesus as he was responding to Satan, how he showed us what it looks like to be faithful to God. When you're tempted to put God to the test, when you're tempted to take God's promises and turn them into demands, he showed us what it looks like to be faithful. If you would, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. I've also got it here in this white sheet if you want to look at here uh, in your bulletins. It's the second half down there. It says Matthew 4, verse 1 to 11. So then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, The man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. The part I want to focus on is the the second temptation when Jesus is taken to the top of the temple. And Satan says, Throw yourself down and God will save you. Because we are tempted to put God to the test. Maybe not climb to the top of the church and and jump off to see if God will save us, but tempted to put God to the test in other ways. And even Jesus was tempted here. It's important to see kind of how everything, all all this is happening, to understand, understand what Jesus is saying here and how we can learn from him. So the first thing is to understand what Satan says. Satan comes to him, and he says, If you are the Son of God, Again, attacking his pride or attacking Jesus' identity, trying, to, trying to, to get under his skin. If you are who you say you are, if you are who everybody is going to believe you are, if you really are the Son of God, 
then throw yourself off this temple. Now, I've never actually been to Jerusalem, but, but reading about it, they would say that like, if he's talking about this one corner of the temple, it was actually over the Kidron Valley, that if you were to fall off, it would be 430 feet down. So we're talking about a huge drop. And Satan is trying to tempt him. Trying to tempt him with his pride. Not understanding who Jesus is. Because Jesus is the creator. Through him all things were created. Jesus is the one who created the, created the seas and then calmed the storms. Jesus is the one who created grain and then multiplied, to make, multiplied the loaves to feed over 5,000 people. Jesus could do this. Satan forgets who he's talking to. But the other thing that he does is really ruthless is he uses the word of God to try and tempt Jesus. That quote that says, if he says, if you throw yourself off, surely angels will come and not a foot of yours will, will strike a stone, that comes from Psalm 91. He's trying to use the word of God to get Jesus to test the bounds of his relationship with God, to test the bounds of God's faithfulness. Sure, God's been faithful, Jesus, but let's see how faithful. Let's see how far we can push it. Jesus, manipulate your Father in heaven. Throw yourself off. Put God in this, in this horrible situation where he either has to save you or let you die. And you see, there's sort of this double bind for Jesus. This rock in a hard place. Because Satan's basically saying, come on, if you trust the word of God, it's written right here. Let's prove it's true. And it is true. If you trust your Father in heaven, jump. Let's, let's see what he'll do. And it is true, God does desire to save us. But not like this. Not when we're trying to, to put God to the test. Trying to test the bounds of his love. See, the Satan, he quotes Psalm 91. Let me read to you what it actually says. This is from Psalm 91, starting at verse 9. It says, If you say, The Lord is my refuge and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra and will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because they love me, says the Lord, I will rescue them. I will protect them, for they acknowledge my name. They will call on me, and I will answer them. I will be with them in trouble. I will deliver them and honor them. With long life, I will satisfy them and show them my salvation. It's a psalm about God's provision, about God's care. That God desires to save people. He desires to care for you and to save you. But he doesn't want to play games. God is holy. And Jesus is saying here, don't take God's promise and try and turn it into a demand. Don't try to hold God hostage with his own promise that he made to us to care for us. Satan comes to him trying to get Jesus to take God's promise and make it a demand. God, come through for me. God, I'm going to put you in a tough spot so that you have to... We want to see how faithful you are, God. Don't do this to God. So we watch how Jesus responds to him. 
Jesus says to him, do not put the Lord your God to the test. He says, it is written. It's actually written in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6, 16. Jesus says, this is not the way we're supposed to treat our Father in heaven who loves us. To put him to the test. To try and test the boundaries of his love or test the boundaries of his faithfulness. But it's actually more to the quote than, Jesus, than what Jesus says. In Deuteronomy 16, uh, 6, 16, the whole thing is, do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massah. Now, I don't know how many of you know Massah, but it's this place, uh, this means actually quarreling, testing. And I'll give you some background. When, when the people of God were in Egypt, thousands of years ago, they were crying out to God. They're crying out to God, Lord, save us. And God came and he brought them out of Egypt. And he brought them to the Red Sea. And they were there with their backs against the Red Sea and they said, God, have you brought us out here to die because the Egyptian army was coming? They were complaining. God had saved them and they were already complaining. And yet God opened up the Red Sea. He parted the Red Sea. And they walked across on dry land. And when the Egyptians followed, they were consumed by the sea. And then shortly afterwards, they come to this place called Marah. And they come and they, they find some water to drink and they're thirsty and say, have you brought us out here to die of thirst? So they took a tree and they put it into the water and, and actually God directed Moses. They put it in the water and the water became drinkable. Is that the right word? Potable, I guess. <laughs> but they could drink it and the whole, the whole people drank and they had enough water. So God provided for them. But pretty soon they started saying, but we're hungry. Have you brought us out here to make us starve? And God was faithful. He gave them manna, bread from heaven. Every morning, manna on the ground for them to collect. And pretty soon they said, yeah, but we don't like this bread. We want some meat. God provided meat, quail, every evening. Bread in the morning, quail in the evening, water when they needed it. And then they come to this place, Rephidim. This place that Moses later named Massah. They came to this place and they got there and they were dying of thirst. And they started to complain to Moses. Have you brought us out here to make us die of thirst? They complained again. They even threatened to stone Moses. Moses was terrified and so he came to God. But let's read this story actually. If you want to open your Bibles to Exodus 17, or it's on this white sheet here if you just want to read with me. It said, The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why do you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to God, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take with your, in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before, before you by the rock of Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and they called the place Massah and Meribah, 
because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Despite all the things that God had done, despite his faithfulness time and time again of answering their cries, saving them from slavery, providing, providing them a way through the Red Sea, providing them water and food and meat and water again, the people still complained. Despite everything that God had done, they complained. They put God to the test. And Jesus was tempted to put God to the test in the desert. He was truly tempted. But he remembered God's baptism or what God spoke to him. This is my son whom I love and him I am so pleased. He remembered God's care for him in the desert and he remained faithful. He spoke to the devil or he replied to the Satan with not only with the words of scripture but also with faith in God. Showing us that when we are tempted to test God, it's better to trust him. It's better to trust God than to test him. Because we are, from time to time, tempted to put God to the test. We are tempted to see just how far we can push it. We are tempted to think that, God, you know, actually, I think I deserve a little bit more than this. And Jesus shows how to, to do it faithfully, how to respond to that temptation with trust. Trusting God. So what do we learn from this? I mean, what are we to draw out of this? Because, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you are tempted to climb to the top of our church and give God the ultimatum? If you're tempted, please talk with me after the service. We do need to talk. But we are tempted to put God to the test in many ways. Tempted to take what he's done and take it for granted and say, God, actually, I think I deserve more. It begins when we start taking God for granted. When we start taking all the things that God has done and we, stop, we start forgetting about the, what he's done in our lives and what our, in our past. Like the people did at Massa. God had done amazing things for them and they took him for granted. I mean, I don't, I don't know what I would have been like, but if God had parted the Red Sea and we walked on dry land, I think that would have been enough to last me a lifetime. But they forgot. They took it for granted. You know, I don't know, maybe not. Because I say that because I think about how God has provided for me through my life. I mean, this amazing place where I live, my wife and my two boys, our, our home, the things that we have, and yet I still take them for granted. After a while, you just start thinking that, yeah, I deserve these. I should have always had these things. God, forgive me. God, forgive us. But the people of Israel, they put God to the test. All the things that they had, all the things that God had done, and they still asked, have you brought us out here to kill us of thirst? Are we to die out here? But here's the big question, they said, is God even with us? Man, what a slap in the face. Is God even here with us? God, are you even real? We need water. We're thirsty. Are you even real? How could they ask a question like that? How could they ask such a question? I have this theory. They started to confuse God's duty with his gifts. 
They started to think that God's gift was actually his duty. That the good things that God does for us, the good things that God has done for us throughout our lives, the good things he's doing for us right now that we totally take for granted, these are gifts to us. And how often we take them for granted. We forget what God has done through the scriptures. We forget the long story of salvation, the way he's been faithful to to people, first to Israel, then to the church, to us here today. We forget what God has done, not not only through scripture and throughout history, but also in our lives. I mean, when we look back, we think of what God has been doing since the time we were children. The ways he's watched out for us. The times when we should have died and we didn't. The times when we should have been uh, without everyone, we should have lost it all, and yet we didn't. God was still faithful. The times when our heart was broken. When we felt like crawling into a hole, and yet God was there with us. God has been faithful. And yet we take it for granted. We take it for granted and we stop remembering what God has done and we start focusing on, God, what have you done for me lately? We forget what God has done for us and we start asking, God, what have you done for us lately? We begin by taking God for granted. But that's just the start, actually. It gets worse. The more we take God for granted, the the less we trust him. Over the long run, the more we take God for granted, the less we put our faith in Him. Until pretty soon we're saying things like, I don't really know how God is involved in my life. I haven't been really relying on God. I mean, I still believe Jesus is the Lord, my Lord and Savior, but I haven't really been relying on God. I've just kind of been living. Like I guess I could probably live without God if I really had to. And maybe that would work for a short time until something goes completely wrong until the bottom falls out. And then we start saying, God, I I don't care what you've done. I need more. God, I demand more. And we are tempted to put God to the test. This is how the the process goes, how how the slippery slope begins. When we start taking God for granted, when we stop giving praise and thanks for what he's done in our lives, and we start to take him for granted, And then pretty soon we're tempted to put God to the test. We stop trusting and we're tempted to test God. And that's when our rebellion goes into full bloom. When we stop trusting and we start testing. When we stop trusting God and we start testing God. And we start saying, God, I want you to come through for me on this. God, I need you to fix this thing. I need you to to finally do... I need more, God. If you're so good, then I need you to save me. I need you to save my relationship. God, if you're so powerful, then I need you to heal me. In fact, I demand that you heal me. Because, God, you said in your word that if 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 we follow you, that you'll take care of us. And we turn God's promise into a demand. And we test God. We take God's promise and we try to hold God hostage with it. I encourage us to be faithful. To trust God. 
especially when we're tempted to test him. But how does this work out? Like, what sort of things do we do in our week? What can we do this week to begin trusting God? Now, hopefully you're seeing that this is a slippery slope. Then we start taking God for granted. Then we stop trusting, and then we start testing. How do we avoid this? What do we do? How are we, how are we to be triumphant when we are tested, or when we are tempted to test God? When we are tempted to put God to the test? How do we triumph through that? The only way I know is by giving thanks. Giving thanks to God. I was talking with Doug this morning, and he was talking about some of the complications he's had with his shoulder. And I see him over there a few minutes ago. It seems like maybe it's still hurting. But he's talking about this amazing place that we have this morning as we were praying before the service. He's praying about how grateful he was for this church and for this beautiful place, this sun that's shining. He could have easily been there complaining. could have easily been there saying, God, I don't even care what you've done for me in the past. I need more now. But he was saying thank you. And I know that some of you are in really hard places right now. I know some of you are in amazingly difficult times. But I want to encourage you, not to paper over it, but I want to encourage you that we still have reason to give thanks. I mean, we have homes to live in. Most of you have at least one car, some more. You have plenty of food to eat, clothes to wear. That makes us richer than about 95% of the rest of the world. 95% of the rest of the world don't have those things. Not only that, but this place that we live in, this amazing place, a couple months ago, we were asking in our community, we did that survey. I think of the responses we got, like 80% of them said, what's your favorite thing? They said, this beautiful place we live. We don't have tsunamis here that come and destroy our city. We don't have earthquakes here. We don't have volcanoes. We don't have hurricanes or tornadoes. There is no civil war in the Kootenays right now. Our kids get up and they, we able to, they send them to school without worry if they're going to be killed. They're not being brought into, into children armies. It is amazing here and we have reason to be thankful. We have reason to be thankful. I began this morning talking about a few weeks ago when Tracy's little brother called and said he was going to concerts. And I, I was pretty convicted about like, man... I was so, like, it's so wrong for me to, to complain because I'm so grateful for what God has done. I'm grateful for our home. I mean, God completely provided that. It was a gift from God. There's no way we've been able to do that on our own. I'm grateful for my wife, Tracy, for my two sons. And even today, uh, some friends from the church here, they, they gave us a gift for our adoption. God is providing, and I am grateful for this. This is the best thing we can do when we are tempted to put God to the test, is to give thanks. Now, I know it can be hard, especially if things are difficult right now. Maybe you're angry with God. Maybe you're frustrated with God. 
And the last thing you want to do is say thank you, but I can tell you it is still the best we can do. It is still our best chance. Even if we only can just say, God, I want to say thank you. I don't feel it right now, but I want to say thank you. Even that is a good first step. That's the one thing I want you to do this week. I'm not sure if I want to risk it myself, but... (laughs) It is. The one thing I want us to do this week is say thank you to God. Set times aside this week to say thank you. When you wake up, just start by saying thank you. Just start praising God for the good things that he's done. It's amazing how it sets the tone for the rest of the day. Or say thank you, God, at set times throughout the day. Maybe after a meal. Lord, thank you for this meal. But then take some time to say thank you for the other things that you're doing in my life today or the things you've done in my life in the past. And then pray one more time before you go to sleep. Lord, thank you. And recount the good things that God has done. Those are set times. I encourage you to do them. Or maybe just say thank you to God throughout the day. When you're driving, when you're cooking, when you're working in your shop, when you're just walking along the road. Say thank you to God. It's amazing what it begins to do in us. Because it's hard to trust, or sorry, it's hard to, to take God for granted when we're thanking Him for the things He's done. It's hard for us to doubt God when we're thanking, for, thanking Him for all the ways He's been faithful. I don't know how you could possibly say, God, thank you for doing this. Thank you for saving me here. Thank you for being with me when I was hurting. And then turn around and say, but I'm not really sure you're there. You've got to prove to me more. You just can't do the two. Imagine what we begin to look like, what life for us begins to look like as we are saying thank you all the time, as we are giving God thanks all the time. Imagine how that begins to speak to people around us. Friends and neighbors who see us and say, wow, how can you be like this? Things are really hard for you right now. How can you say thank you? And we begin to talk with them about Jesus, about our faith. And we're not just making it up. It's not like we're just pasting on a plastic smile. But we're actually grateful. Because we may not be in the time of our life right now, but we remember those times when God was with us when we were the ways he's provided for us. But not only the testimony that it has to people around us, imagine what this begins to do in our lives. Our own lives when we are praising God. And those times when we are tempted to be resentful or bitter or to put God to the test, they don't happen when we are thanking God. When we are tempted to put God to the test, give God thanks. When we are tempted to take God's promise and turn them into a demand, give thanks to God. That's the one thing I want you to do this week. Give God thanks. Amen.